It's such a holy moment. I thought it would be good. We just have some more reflective moments in silence to give thanks. Could you just play that chorus? You don't mind me being spontaneous, right? So, and I'll just say a few phrases at the back of the chorus and we can give thanks to the Lord. So, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are holy. Thank you for the blood of Christ that brings us to your holy throne room. Thank you that you've washed our sins clean. Thank you for bringing us back together. Thank you for your holy scriptures, the prophets. We thank you that those who have served our church to make these services possible. We thank you for our fathers and you, our Heavenly Father, for all good gifts come from you. is overwhelming. To you we give thanks and glory and honor in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So today, Sharon was going now to take us into the book of Habakkuk. How do you say that, Sharon, for me? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It's like a chicken. Habakkuk. Yes. So, but she's chosen for her scripture reading, uh, Romans 8, 31 to 39. And I'm going to read that from the message. Uh, I think our youth will enjoy that text uh, in everyday language. So Romans 8, 31. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by setting his son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would even dare to point a finger the one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is gonna be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? No way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. As the Scripture says, they kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm actually convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, 
today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable. Absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Can y'all say amen to that? Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with the family this morning. You here in person as well as you online. We miss you. We hope you're back here with us soon. And I want to, first of all, just thank the elders for inviting me to preach this morning. What a joy. But before I can get into this, I have to ask you a couple of questions. When you're reading a good book and you've gotten through the first chapter or two, do you jump to the end and read the last chapter because you want to see what's going, how it's all going to end? Or when you watch sports, do you have the DVR in your hand and you're fast forwarding because you want to see the great plays or maybe even who wins? Or maybe you like your favorite TV series. Do you get online and check for the spoiler alert because you want to see how it ends? Why do we do that? Well, I think it's because we don't like to live in the tension. We want to see what's going to happen. We want to know how it ends, and then we can just relax and enjoy it. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't really work in real life, does it? We don't get a spoiler alert. We have to actually wait and watch and wonder, how are things going to unfold? Well, we experienced a lot of this shared tension going through this pandemic, haven't we? We have wondered, am I going to get the coronavirus? Remember at the beginning, if you saw somebody or you went to Costco, you'd be watching. Has it been 14 days? What are those symptoms again? And we had a lot of tension around this. And then we had shutdowns and we've had reopenings. And when's all of that going to happen? And we've waited for a vaccine. This is a lot of tension. Certainly, there is tension with medical problems. We have to wait for a diagnosis, and that's just the worst, whether it's for us or for someone we love. Or maybe we're waiting to see if we get the classes we need, or if we got the grades that we were hoping for, or if we got the job, or maybe if we lost the job. So much tension. And while we're waiting, if things aren't turning out the way we hoped, we say, why is this happening? Is God involved? Is he hearing my prayers? Is he answering them? Are we okay up there? I'm kind of hearing a funny sound, but I'm okay? Okay. Well, recently, as we endured the pandemic, my mom was struggling with end-stage dementia. And then my husband, Jim, had a health scare where we had to wait for four weeks before we found out he was okay and it was all fine. We were so thankful. But then just a few days later, my mom did pass after several really tumultuous months. And when I'm under a lot of stress and tension like that, I often ask, Lord, is there a place in scripture that I can look? Has somebody else gone through something like this? Or did Jesus say something about it? Because I need some help here. Where should I be in scripture? And he reminded me of Habakkuk because in the year 2010, the women's Bible study went through Habakkuk, and it made a bigger impression on me than just about anything I had studied in a long time. Habakkuk was a prophet from the seventh century before Christ, 
and he dealt with terrifying circumstances that made absolutely no sense to him. So he cried out to Yahweh, his personal God, the God of the Israelites, and he was changed. Isn't that what we want in the midst of the tension? So I have clung to these truths from Habakkuk, and I am excited to share them with you. So today, as Brian said, I am going to give you a summary of the book of Habakkuk, which can be Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or whatever. Uh, we've had fun talking, and I've said the name so many times, I'm probably going to say it differently each time. But his story is just three chapters, so you can read it easily in one sitting. In my Bible, it's only three pages. And if you would like, if you did bring a Bible, that new app, go ahead and open. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the first half, but it's toward the end. It's only like five books from the end. I wish I could tell you what page, but everybody's Bible's different. So look it up in the table of contents. There's really no judgment. No one likes to be seen looking it up in the table of contents, but just do it. All right. Well, before we pray, I mean, before we start and dig in, I'd like us to pray. Lord, like Habakkuk and the demon-possessed boy's father in Mark 9, we pray that we believe, but help our unbelief, because life is often hard here, and we all face faith challenges and are on a journey of faith. Transform us, mature us, help our faith in you to keep growing daily. Help us today to have ears to hear and eyes to see more of you. We want to get more of you right in the midst of our challenges. In Jesus' name, amen. So Habakkuk was a prophet, and prophet's job is to make God audible. They're called by God, designated by him to be his spokesperson and deliver his message to his people. So God often gives prophets visions or dreams, and then they're to turn around and tell the people about those. But Habakkuk is a little different from other prophets because in his book, it's more a record of his personal pleadings with God and his wrestling with God about all the injustice that he sees in his nation. And so rather than oracles or prophetic words given to the people, it's more his cries and God's answers. So to set some context, injustice and idolatry had been running rampant through Israel to the point that the nation had already split, and the northern part had already fallen to the Assyrians. And then in the southern region of Judah, there had been good kings, but the current one, Jehoiakim, was not good, and he was exploiting his subjects, and he had no concern for justice or mercy. And then his subordinates turned around and did the same thing. And the result was widespread oppression and violence and injustice and mistreatment. And this was happening among God's people. So this was a mess. God's reputation was at stake. So Habakkuk takes his questions to God. And God is good with that. When someone of faith cries out in that way, it is coming out of a fundamental belief that God is all-powerful. He is all-righteous. And we just are having trouble reconciling what we see happening with what we know is true of God. 
and we start to wonder, when is God going to do something about this? Well, I think we can relate to this prophet, can't we? And so we're going to follow him along his faith journey. And we're even going to see later how Jesus, too, cried out in, t- in the tension because none of us gets by through this life without tension. So the major theme that unites all three chapters, the whole book, is preserving faith in God despite challenging circumstances. Sometimes our challenges are so disorienting that it feels like we've hit a brick wall. And it can take some time for us to reorient. So the faith challenge for Habakkuk is a foreign invasion and oppression. Habakkuk knows his country is in trouble and he's seeking a response from God. So here's the structure of the three chapters. It's a Q&A session, really, between God and Habakkuk. So first, it's Habakkuk's question, which could be seen as a complaint. And then the Lord responds. And then Habakkuk's not completely settled with that response, so he asks a second question. And the Lord responds again. And then lastly, in chapter 3, we hear Habakkuk's response as a psalm as he ponders God's ways and praises him with an incredible affirmation of faith. So let's start with question one. This is how the book opens with his first question. So I'm going to read from verses two through four. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk here is asking, using a poem of lament, how long must I wait for your justice or your salvation? Habakkuk is referring to the injustice and the wrongdoing of his own people where the rich are using their power and their money to get their way and trampling on the poor. Habakkuk seems to think God is indifferent. So how does God respond? I'm going to read from verses 5 through 9, though his response actually goes through verse 11. So God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk, Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. Whoa. Yes, I'm sure Habakkuk was amazed as he learned that the Lord was raising up these dreaded Babylonians to execute his judgment on his own people. Really, the Babylonians, oh dear. We are told they were a law unto themselves, 
setting their own standards with no restraint and spreading terror everywhere they went. They, they were ruthless, they were ferocious people, but God was at work. Despite their forces, their fierce horses, or their forces, their speed, their violence, their guilt, their own strength was their God. And yet, our God, the God of the Israelites, was going to use them as his instrument to judge his own people. Now that was a bitter pill to swallow. Naturally, Habakkuk has more questions. And I think it is hard for all of us to trust God when we don't get the answer we want. And we don't understand, why is this happening? But it's even harder when we pray and things get worse, or they seem to get worse. But Babylon, could Babylon really stop God's redemptive power? Well, heading into the second question, Habakkuk is still feeling this tension. But before he lodges the next complaint, he affirms his confidence that God is from everlasting. He's the Holy One. He's eternal and immortal. He's the one from the beginning. This is a great way to start a conversation with God, affirming what you know to be true of him. Then Habakkuk acknowledges God's sovereignty over the nations, appointing them for judgment and punishment. He clearly has faith in God's eternal power, and that leads him to his main and his second question. In verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He gets right to the point. He says, Lord, why are you just being silent and why are you tolerating Babylon when you don't tolerate evil or wrongdoing? How can you allow these bad guys to destroy us, your good guys? Here Habakkuk seems to think that God is inconsistent and his punishment seems excessive. His solution seems worse than the problem. Habakkuk cannot make sense of what is happening here. So he goes on in the next few verses about how the Babylonians are like fishermen and they are like fishermen whose nets they're dragging up and catching all the fish. And he, and he seems to think God seems to be just sitting idly by while they keep emptying their nets and devouring the nations. But don't miss what he says in chapter two, verse one. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I think his attitude is already starting to turn slightly here. And I wonder if it's a result of his pouring his heart out to God. He says he will wait like a watchman on the city walls. I will plant myself here and I will watch and I will wait and I will listen for God's answer. Habakkuk is wrestling with God here. He's asking hard questions, but he's being honest. And God is great with that. It is essential that we do that kind of wrestling with God. But afterwards, do we take Habakkuk's posture of standing watch and waiting and listening for God's response? 
sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just keep talking. I keep asking and I keep reiterating it. it Maybe a little different each time. But it's hard to just wait and watch. That's an, the essential next step. All right, so the, it's the Lord's turn. It's his answer now. And he gives a long response from verses 2 through 20 of chapter 2. But he starts with Habakkuk. He's going to give him a vision. And he says, I want you to write down this vision on tablets for all to hear. And I want you to have a herald go and run with it all over town. Everyone should hear it, announce it. But the message is for the future. They'll have to wait for an appointed time, but it will certainly come and won't delay. There's that word, wait, again. It may seem slow in coming, but God's answer will be right on time. God's timing is always right. So in verse, chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord acknowledges, yes, the enemy is puffed up, they are arrogant, they are greedy, but he calls for the righteous to live by his faithfulness, or by his faith, as most versions say. So this is really a key verse, that the righteous are to live by faith. And it's right in the middle of this description of the enemy. So we're to live by faith right in the midst of everything. And we need patient faith because it takes time for God to work. The Lord wants us to cling to him and believe in him and trust in him even when we don't have understanding, even when the days are darkest. God wants Habakkuk to live in faith that he will take Babylon down, but in God's time. And we live in faith that God will bring down any present-day Babylon-like nations or empires that act like them, too. Many nations eventually do become like Babylon because of sin that leads to injustice and idolatry. But God will not let these nations go on forever. So the righteous will live by faith. Where have we heard that before? Abraham. Yes. In Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul reiterated it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous will live by faith. And Paul also said it in Galatians 3.16. So through Christ, we are the righteous and we live by faith. What about the enemies taking over Israel? Well, also in the vision, the Lord spells out five woes. And these are taunt songs meant to emphasize Babylon's coming doom. These are five exclamations of grief to reassure Habakkuk that God will not let evil go unpunished. So most versions say, woe to him who, da 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 da. But in the message, Eugene Peterson says, who do you think you are? And I just kind of like that. So I'm gonna paraphrase this section. Woe to the aggressive empire builder who accrues wealth and control from theft and plundering others. These, these were the ferocious people, these were their acts. And I just, like I said, I like Eugene Peterson's version better. Who do you think you are, covetous exploiters who feather your nest at the exploitation of others, seeking your own self-security while denying it to your subjects? Third, who do you think you are, violent tyrant, 
who uses bloodshed and injustice to build yourselves up? Fourth, who do you think you are, inhumane demoralizer? You're robbing subjects of their self-respect, strength, and honor by enticing them with lust and drunkenness and corruption. And lastly, who do you think you are, idolaters, who ascribe divine status to your own creations, and then you expect your own creation to get up and help you? Well, God is reassuring Habakkuk with this vision that he is not indifferent and he is not inconsistent toward the sins of Babylon or Judah, but rather that the righteous will be vindicated. That his glory actually fills the whole earth. And in verse 220, he is reassuring him, he's still in the temple, he's still in control. He is our sovereign God. And God seems to be saying, don't worry, I see all the horrible things that have happened and are happening and all the ones that are still going to happen and I will see that Babylon gets theirs but I'm still in control all the time. I've got this. Can we hear God saying the same thing to us? Well, chapter three. We're moving right along. Chapter three is Habakkuk's prayer or psalm with musical notation. So it tells us that this was meant to be sung. And this time when he cries out to God, we see a change of his attitude. He's no longer arguing and protesting with God, but he's rather petitioning him in verses one and two to repeat the awesome deeds of the past that showed his character and his mercy even in his wrath. So in verses three to 15, Habakkuk seems to have a theophany, which is a powerful and awesome appearance or manifestation of God showing up to confront evil. And this is a dramatic scene that you'll need to read for yourself. But it's a vision that spans all of salvation history, from creation to the plagues and the exodus to the final revelation of God's victory over all his enemies. Remember, the exodus is the anchor story of God saving his people that the Israelites clung to when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's horses and chariots in that process. Habakkuk is calling on God to do what he did in that exodus, deliver us like you did from Egypt, deliver us that way from Babylon too. And Yahweh is portrayed here as a warrior in his chariot riding against the enemy. The scene has big forces of nature, including winds and earthquakes and more, and the sun and moon stand still. There's lots of apocalyptic imagery. All the earth is under God's control. And it acknowledges the supreme power of Yahweh, our God of order, who is coming with the purpose of delivering or saving his people from their oppressors and the wicked forces of chaos, defeating evil and bringing justice. This is really good news. All right, now for the best part and the most famous verses from chapter three, verses 16 to 19. So starting with verse 16, and I love this verse, it's really where the title of the sermon came from. Habakkuk, having seen all of this and heard all of this, he says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. That sounds like fear to me. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity 
to come on the nation invading us. And that is faith. Habakkuk was terrified. It sounds like he was weak in the knees thinking about what was to come, what was ahead. Who wouldn't be? But he had what he needed, confidence that his suffering would be part of God's redemptive plan and the assurance that vindication was on its way. And then he could wait patiently for both the calamity that was gonna come on his nation and the retribution that would come upon the Babylonians. So fear and faith here were coinciding. They were happening at the same time, but faith was trumping fear. Habakkuk was now ready to live by faith, not by fear, because of all that he had seen. And he knew behind it all was his sovereign, holy God. I don't know about you, but somehow in my early years of faith, I didn't really hear this message that these two could coincide. I heard that faith and fear were opposites. And that always left me thinking, so when I'm scared and I'm anxious and I'm fearful, I guess I'm really just not having faith. I'm really not measuring up here. But the story of Habakkuk and how God takes him reminds me that really God is very gracious and that he welcomes even my authentic whining or complaining and my questions. And though he may not answer as I want and my circumstances may not change, he actually gives me more of himself. I get more God and that's what I want more than anything and I get his strength. So now for the most famous hopeful verses, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Wow. Thinking of what could happen ahead, he realizes the failure of these resources would be devastating. They would have a huge, serious economic and spiritual ramification. And yet, Habakkuk says he will rejoice in the Lord. He will be joyful in God his Savior. Could we be that confident when our circumstances are that dire? Do we rejoice and find joy in the Lord for the Lord's sake, that is pure faith. How would you feel, fill in those yellow parts on the slide if we were to say, use this as a prayer template? And I might encourage you to even do that later today. Take out your journal, open to Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, and fill in your own blanks for the circumstances that are hardest for you. Though this may happen and that may happen, though this and that, can you then say, like Habakkuk does in verse 18, I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will still be joyful in my Savior. Habakkuk didn't seem to receive any visible support from others, but he was receiving strength from God himself, the one in whom he trusts. And that was remarkable. So the final verse, verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. 
Wow, this is a victorious verse where he is declaring that even as a sure-footed deer makes its way up those jagged mountains without slipping, so the prophet's faith empowers him to tread on the heights or live above his circumstances and have his soul be super connected to God as he's living on that higher plane. So yes, faith and fear can coincide. We're fully human and we have a lot of fears. Even though the most popular uh, numerous command in scripture is do not fear. I think God knows how often we need reminding. But I do wanna take a minute to, as we say in women's Bible study, land in Jesus. And though he isn't specifically mentioned in Habakkuk, just as the Exodus was the anchor story of the faith of the Israelites, Jesus is our anchor story, our big saving event. And he's our savior, and he is familiar with tension. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he empathizes with us. He understands our fears and our anxieties. So we read in the Gospels how he dealt with that tension in faith and without sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. He wanted Peter, James, and John to come along and keep watch while he prayed because his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He cried out to his Abba Father for whom everything is possible to take this cup away from him. But then he prayed the ultimate prayer, not my will, but yours. Jesus' anguish was to the point that as he prayed, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Then on the cross, bearing our sins, Jesus cried out David's words from the opening line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But his very last words, just before he breathed his last, were the ultimate words of surrender. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We are his disciples, and he gets tension. He understands, and we follow his perfect example of righteous living by faith right in the midst of the tension, right up until and through death. Like him, we are not spared from death, but we're raised through death. With faith in Jesus, we know we will be with him for eternity. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Thank you. Now, what I don't want you to think is that I'm trivializing any of the real life problems that I know you, I know a lot of you, and I know you're dealing with a lot of big stuff. We all face different problems at different times. And earlier, I told you what I had been dealing with earlier this year. And I told you that I first studied Habakkuk in 2010. And at that time, God had me in a very interesting place where I was walking alongside a young woman who was dying of cancer. And I would go and visit her 
and talk to her about what I was learning in Habakkuk. And I would share with her how he cried out and how he prayed and how God showed up and answered. And God used that time between us. He helped to shape our prayers because of this book of Habakkuk. And he helped transform us through that. Now, I know that we're not all always dealing with this kind of life and death circumstance. And God uses some of the lighter things. I was also going through a home remodel where the contractor kept saying, I've never had a job where so many things went wrong. That is not what you like to hear from your contractor. So God is our holy, sovereign God, and he meets us whether we're going through the big, awful stuff or the less dramatic stuff. And he uses it all. So wrapping up, we want to look back at Habakkuk. Do you see this mysterious thing that happened on his faith journey? We saw that he cried out honestly to God, and he learned to wait and watch and listen for God's response, even when he was afraid. And then as he seemed to get more of God and know him more deeply, his fear gradually gave way to strength and faith and more awe in the Lord. Ultimately, we saw his joyful resolve, his hopeful praise, and faith in Yahweh's strength and character, even though his terrifying circumstances did not change. Habakkuk was changed. He is a shining example for us of the righteous living by faith and understanding that our suffering is part of God's redemptive plan, even if we're afraid. But you may think, ah, yeah, but Habakkuk knew the end of the story. And that allowed him to have more faith. God showed him the whole thing. He knew Babylon would get what was coming from them. But what about my tension? What about the tension I live in all the time? Do I know how things end? Yes, ultimately, we have the end of the story. We too have read the spoiler alert. And we know God wins. Yay! <laughs> so our faith does triumph over our fears. Scripture tells us one day he will put all things right and we will no longer deal with the fallen, dark, chaotic evil of this world. He will defeat it all. Our faith will become sight. And all will be perfect in God's physical presence. So since God wins, we win. We're on his team. We're his people. So remembering to look back on God's faithfulness and keeping one eye on the future, the assured end of the story, then we can live in our challenging circumstances even though we're afraid because we will live in it by faith so that we too can tread on the heights like Habakkuk. Now receive these words of benediction before, as, you, as you leave this place today. The sovereign Lord is your strength. He makes your feet like the feet of a deer, enabling you to tread on the heights. Go and live in faithfulness because you know the end of the story. God wins. Amen. Amen.